podcast one production. I'm not perfect, but as a nutritionist, I've got a pretty healthy diet. And recently we went on a holiday, on a little ski holiday with the family, and we stayed at a place that had only one cafe slash restaurant in it. And I swear, everything in that place came out of a packet and out of the freezer. It was all the same colour. It was so strange. It was all this kind of beigey, yellowy colour, like fish and chips and hash browns and bread. (laughs) And then, you know, a couple of sad roasted tomatoes on the side. But we ate like crap for the whole week. And is it any coincidence that I also felt like crap for the whole week? And, you know, maybe it was because we were tired and the kids were grumpy and all of that. But I can't tell you when we got home how good it felt to get a baking tray and pile it with vegetables and do a beautiful big veggie bake. I just, I instantly felt so much better. I know that eating good food has a huge impact on how I feel, and it turns out that there's actually research to support this. This is Healthy Her with Amelia Phillips, and in this episode, I want to understand how food does affect our mood. Megan Hockey is an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist who specialises in food for mood and brain health and is currently embarking on a PhD in nutritional psychiatry. She's doing this through the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. Hi, Meg. Thanks so much for coming in today. No worries. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to join you today and uh, share all the knowledge that we have going on at the moment. This podcast series is all about helping mums get healthier, but It's also about helping mums be happier as well. So I think food ticks both those boxes. What about you? Do you think, can food really help improve our mood or maybe vice versa? Yeah, it absolutely can. Um, I'm involved in a field of research that looks at how food impacts on mood, mental health and brain health. And there's really quite amazing studies coming out at the moment to show that this link is really clear. So there's been studies that have shown that those who eat a healthier diet um, have been linked to having a 35% lower risk of depression. But on the other hand, um, we're finding that if people tend to eat a more Western style diet, so that's something that's quite processed, high in refined foods, sugary foods, and these poor quality fats, that they have a 50% increased risk for developing depression. So 50%. I mean, that is that is nuts when you think about uh, the prevalence of mental health in society that that food can impact that by 50%. Yeah, and this was just one study done in a set population. So whether that's transferable to everyone, it's not clear. But to have those such staggering numbers, I think it's really quite time to sit up and to take a listen to what's actually going on with what we eat and how our brain health is affected. Another study that came out recently was something called the SMILES trial. So it was a clinical trial that looked at the impact of diet on depression in those who had major depression. Participants were allocated to one of two groups, so to a diet intervention or to a group that didn't change their diet. And of the um, participants that were in the diet group, 32% lowered their um, depressive symptoms so much so that they were no longer categorised as clinically depressed according to the depression scale that they used in the study. 35%. And we're talking about people that had 
major depressive symptoms. Yeah, yep. so Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, I'll caveat that and say that they still um, were on antidepressants and continued with their normal treatments. But it's just going to show that as an adjunct to uh, conventional treatments for depression, that diet really does matter. And what about with mums particularly? Are mums more susceptible to mental health disorders than any other part of the population? Postnatal depression is something that um, mums are susceptible to and it can occur. And there is some research to show that diet may also be of benefit to mums in this time of life. I did my master's through Deakin University and I'm involved in a research project at the moment that's on its way to be published. So I can't talk too much about it, but we looked at the impact of diet quality on the mental health of pregnant and breastfeeding women. And the results were astounding. And a lot of that was looking at also what happens following on once you stop breastfeeding and these patterns that are set up. And I love the work that the Food and Mood Centre do, which is who you're involved in and as an adjunct to Deakin University. I think what you guys are doing over there is is incredible. Thank you. Um, I think it's so important to target mums as well and to intervene there because they are such good role models for their kids as well. And as many of your listeners will know, kids just absorb everything that we do and learn from our behaviours. So if mums are eating well, this often translates to kids, um, to kids eating well, which is so important when we think of mental health disorders because half of all mental disorders will develop before the age of 14. So if we can really drill home to kids, the importance of diet at an early age, we may be able to prevent some of um, the disorders that are happening out there. And I love this idea of having not only a healthy approach to eating, but when we are eating these healthier foods, then it is also having a a reductionary uh, impact on our susceptibility to having depression. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, And diet's one of these things, but we also know that other lifestyle factors, so things like getting adequate sleep, exercising, um, these can all have a positive impact on lowering our risk for mental disorders as well. So with the SMILES trial, it was the Mediterranean diet that came out as having the most impact on mood, these mood disorders? Yeah, so that's correct. The diet that was used as part of the study was a blend of the traditional Mediterranean-style diet and the Australian dietary guidelines. So it was really a diet that was plant-predominant and high in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, so things like wholemeal bread, wholemeal pasta, uh, nuts, seeds, good quality extra virgin olive oil, legumes, and moderate amounts of red meat and dairy. So on the flip side, it was quite low in processed food. So you things like your package and your takeaway food, and it really emphasised um, a whole foods approach. I'll just jump in and say as well, although this is the Mediterranean diet is the diet that's been studied the most, other traditional diets, so things like a traditional Norwegian or Japanese diets, they're still likely to have the same benefits. So anything that's a plant predominant diet, so with plants at the core, the eating pattern, then they're all still likely to have a key benefit for mental health. The research just isn't there yet. And a key factor of these diets, of course, is the minimal amount of processed foods I can imagine that are. Yeah, yeah. So what we know is that processed foods, so things like packaged um, baked goods, they all contain these emulsifiers and additives, which are really quite noxious or quite bad for our gut health. And in particular, the bacteria that live in our gut. 
And what we're seeing from the research is that there's a um, that link between our gut and our mental health in many different ways. So if we can take care of our gut health, in theory, it should be able to play a positive impact on our mood and mental state. I'd love to call out specific foods, you know, what were the magic foods in the Mediterranean diet, but I know you're going to say... It's not one specific food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, that's true. Um, so there's no one specific food. It's a really whole of diet approach because of the importance of these nutrients all working together. But there's definitely, if you are thinking of making some changes to your diet to make it more aligned with a Mediterranean style diet, um, starting off by adding in some oily fish. So things like sardines, salmon and tuna are really good. Adding in some all more forms, all, so yeah, tinned smoked salmon, you know, um, fresh salmon. Yep. Um, anything within your means. I mean, fresh uh, tends to have the high nutrient quality, um, but frozen is often just as good depending on how quickly it's frozen. I would stick to those and tin salmon more over a smoked salmon just because you're going to eat more of the um, the fillet fillet style of fish in one yeah, sitting. Yeah, I think smoked salmon is probably very high in salt as yeah, well. Yeah, as well. Yeah. And it's it's more processed. So anything that's highly processed, we tend to say is not probably as good as a, a fresh sauce. How many times a week would you recommend? Two to uh, three. Fish. Yeah. Oh, that's two- so achievable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't always have to be a crispy skinned salmon made over half an hour in the kitchen. It can be a quick can that you can chuck in your bag, have some with some crackers at work or pop into the school lunch boxes. So whatever you can do um, is going to be better than nothing. Any other foods? Yep. So nuts and seeds, that's always a good one as well. So thinking more about the unsalted varieties here, they all have um, really good types of fats that are helpful for our brain health. Uh, legumes as well. So legumes is something a term that most or many people might not have heard of before actually. So thinking here things like beans, lentils, really just the chickpeas. So those things that you see on the supermarket shelf, um, they can come in a tin form or you can get them dried and soak them yourself. But they're really high in fibre and that's a preferred fuel source for your gut bacteria. So really good. And then a good quality olive oil as well is another key one that I think is a good aspect of the Mediterranean diet. Do you find, because you're also, besides the research that you're doing, you're also an accredited practicing dietitian. So that means you're, you know, at the coalface, you're seeing mums every week. Mm -hmm. In your clinic and and from what you've seen, do you find that mums aren't eating as well as others, for example? I do find that. And I think a lot of the time from my conversations with mothers is that it comes down to time and also because they're so loving and nurturing, they want to do the best for their children. So take breakfast, for example, when it's in the hustle and bustle, trying to get ready for school or for daycare. Mums are trying to pack a healthy lunchbox for their kids, get them nourished with a healthy breakfast, but they often run out of time for themselves. So they're on the run and uh, forgetting to really feed themselves as well well as they feed their kids. So yeah, absolutely. 
I've noticed this consistently and, and even with myself, my whole eating ritual has changed since having children. I don't actually eat breakfast uh, in the morning when my kids are eating breakfast. I tend to wait until after I've dropped them all at school and I've done some exercise and then I'll tend to have a, a bigger brunch because mm-hmm. it's just so hard to fit it all in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think as well as knowing that it's important to eat, we also have to listen to our own body hunger signals. So if it's something that you're not feeling like eating breakfast, and that's completely fine. And if you can make some time for yourself mid-morning to have a brunch, just make sure that you load up then on some nutrients and some good foods for your gut and that are going to nourish you then. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much variety and variation in the way that we eat. So here I am saying, oh, you know, I I don't call it skipping breakfast because I have a massive breakfast after <laughs> I train. But there'll be some mums listening going, oh, I can't you know, wait 30 minutes after I wake up, I've got to eat something straight away. Does that mean I'm doing something wrong? Or I want to really emphasize the variety of what healthy eating actually entails. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's ever going to be a one size fits all approach that works for everyone. And we can see from studies as well, when people eat the same meal, their blood sugar will respond differently. So we know even when people are eating the same things that their bodies are going to respond differently. So what works for someone may not work as well for someone else. So I think we can't be too hard on ourselves and we can only do the best that we can do with the time and the means that we have really. Being healthy and eating well, you know, for me, it's not just about fueling our body, but it's also about nurturing our mental state as well. You know, it's about respecting our culture, our family traditions. I find suddenly as a mum, you know, we can find ourselves the key decision makers in what our family will be eating. You know, we're often the ones that are doing the shopping, yet we're being bombarded with all this confusing messaging and we've got to kind of pack in all that, all all the family traditions and the culture and then, you know, walk into the supermarket on an empty stomach. (laughs) How can... How can us mums stop getting confused by all the different messaging out there about what's a healthy approach? I'll start off by saying I'm a dietitian and I get it because I still get confused with all the conflicting (laughs) nutrition information out there and it's hard. Um, So we do need to acknowledge that and take it a little bit easier on ourselves. There's never going to be anything such as the perfect diet, only the perfect diet that's going to work for us and what we can do is our best nutrition research is really changing so rapidly. So it's something to also keep in mind. So think back to the 70s or so, we were all on this low fat brigade thinking this was going to be the best diet for us and solve all our problems. But what we know today is that low fat diets may not actually be best for ourselves. So just being um, conscious of the ever-changing environment with research and just continuously being open to learning more. It's such a young Science. I mean, it's a, it blows my mind to think that it was only last century that we discovered that vit- vitamins and minerals existed. Yeah, you know, I and know. here we are. Like, a, was it two thousand and six that we discovered, you know, the gut microbiome, and and we're only just even tapping the surface of that now. Yeah, I think we're really um, just making our way to the top of the um, landslide, and we're just going to in years to come get so much more knowledge coming out about everything better. We always probably just need to go back and think about whether what someone is telling us, is it opinion or is it science? So to help cut through all the nutrition knowledge out there, take a look at 
what the credibility of the person is of who's giving you this nutrition advice. Have they done a degree in nutrition or are they just trying to endorse and sell a product? Um, There's also some things as well that you can look out for um, if someone's advertising something that seems too good to be true or is promising quick results. And in most cases, it often is. Um, We know there's no quick fixes in nutrition. So unfortunately, there's no magic pill that we can take that's going to solve all our problems. So just keeping these things in the back of our mind when we're reading through information can really be helpful. And as the nutrition experts in the field, nutritionists and dietitians can always help you and be happy to have a chat to uh, cut through some of the information for you as well. I love that idea of of uh, just drawing a line and saying, you know what, I'm not going to let this messaging sink in and confuse me. And uh, knowing that there is such a broad range of what is healthy and what is good for us that you don't need to flip-flop around. And I think that's where a lot of people get on the yo-yo diet trap because they try something very extreme uh, and they can, you know, lose a bit of weight or feel a little bit healthier, but then it's, it's not sustainable. I think any diet out there that is extreme, particularly for us mums, and when I say extreme, I mean that takes extreme focus and concentration and effort it's just not achievable when you've got multiple mouths to feed and and all the stresses that us mums have. I agree. I think anything that's going to be too restrictive or too hard, it's just not going to be work because we're going to throw our hands up in the end and say it's all too hard. The thing with cutting out foods and restricting as well is it often tends to result in this binge restrict cycle. So I'm not sure about you, but when I've in the past when I've cut out foods, I often have become a bit more obsessed with them and start thinking about them more and that in the end once you eat the food you can tend to binge and feel guilty and then as a result of that guilt end up restricting yourself again so it's like a merry-go-round going around and around and it's really why diets don't work long term. The last thing I want to do is set our mums up for failure or for feeling like failures if they're not uh, approaching um, or not eating in a way that they're they're happy with. But how would you put into action some of the those first steps that let's say a mum hasn't been focusing on her diet, she's just been grabbing on the go, she's just been eating what the kids have been asking for, hasn't really put kind of any focus in, and she's really wanting to to step up that health um, and, and nutrition profile of her diet, what are some steps she can take to do that? The first thing I would say would be to start small and be realistic about what we can achieve with our time and with what we have on hand. So there's no need to make all changes at once. And what I often say to clients is that if you're going to set out and run a marathon, you're going to train for that. So why is it any different when we're thinking about training to reset our eating habits? So starting small and investing in for the long term. So what what you could do is to take a look at one meal at a time. So think about your breakfast and say, if you had porridge for breakfast one morning, how can you add some more nuts and seeds in there? How can you maybe get some more fruit in there? And once you've mastered that meal, jump on to the next. Um, 
another thing is to work with what you have. And as mothers, we're often trying to please our kids and everyone else in the family before ourselves. So there's no point serving up fried rice if your kids hate fried rice. So if they enjoy something like a bolognese, think about again how you can pack some more nutrients into that can you add some lentils and reduce the amount of the mints that you're using and add in some more veggies like some grated carrot and zucchini? Could you switch to wholemeal pasta yeah. instead of your regular pasta? Yep. Exactly. Even like a pulse pasta is available now. So a legume-based pasta, which is really high in fibre. Another key nutrient that our gut microbiota, so the bacteria that lives in our gut really likes. Pulse pasta? Yeah. Does it, does it taste all right? Sounds hideous. <laughs> Once you've got the nice sauce on top, you can't really notice a difference, although the texture the kids might claw on to, it is a little bit of a nuttier and a little bit more dense than your regular pasta, but you could even start by swapping out um, half your pasta, your white pasta with half pulse pasta and gradually integrate it into your meals. It's funny, I've found having children has been a positive had a positive impact on dinner time yeah because before I had kids you know sometimes I would just throw together whatever I could dinner was a little bit of an afterthought or I'd be going out four nights a week whereas now that I've got a whole family to feed I'll put a lot more effort and planning into the dinner meals and I've also I'm creating this family ritual around sitting at the table, talking about our day. We have a little exercise where everyone goes around and tells the pit and the peak, so the the, the high and the low of their day. Oh, I love that! <laughs> and you, um, the rules are that you don't have to eat everything on your plate, but you have to at least try something and don't move it away from your plate. So, you know, the kids scream about having something green on their plate or or, or some salad. It's like, you don't have to eat it, but just leave it there. And I think being a mum, there is actually a real opportunity to, uh, to take that healthier step. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love your idea of starting with one meal or uh, one small thing and just saying, how can I just add, you know, 10% more healthiness to this meal? Um, Because then it slowly adds up over time. It does. And I often practice an 80-20 approach as well. So trying to make 80% of the food on your plate or 80% of your diet really healthy, really nutrient-packed. But there's also room in the diet for those play foods or those extra foods because in reality, life is about enjoying food as well. So I think to set our kids up um, and be positive role models for them, it's really important to get that message across as well so that they can also develop a healthy relationship with food. And talking about playfulness and joy and all of that because we know that food is there to make us feel joyful and and to bring joy into our lives. Let's talk about alcohol. <laughs> a lot of, a Good lot segue of, there. <laughs> yes, great segue. A lot of us mums uh, do need to have a glass of wine to process the day and to get us through that crazy hour. How does alcohol affect our mood and our ability to function as parents? Yeah, so there's no wonder that mums often uh, have in a glass of wine at the end of the day because mummy's little helper. Yeah, and it's a natural depression. So it can help calm us and remove those feelings of anxiety um, temporarily though. So 
What research is showing is that long-term alcohol intake, when consumed in excess amounts, can actually have a negative impact on our mood. And I'm talking more than the two standard drinks a day here. So the alcohol is actually reducing particular chemicals in our brain. So these feel-good chemicals known as serotonin. So long-term may actually have a negative um, impact on our mood. So just something to keep in mind when we are consuming alcohol, but it's not all bad news out there. Although alcohol as a whole isn't really positive for our gut and our brain, certain types like red wine does contain uh, polyphenols. So they're little antioxidants which gives the red wine its colour and that can actually have a little bit of a positive effect um, on mental health, but that's more due to the the polyphenols and not the alcohol. So if you're really concerned, eat your grapes rather than drink them, I often say. uh, (gasps) That's no fun, Meg. That's no fun at all. Um, I think there's room for you in your diet though, obviously for alcohol in small amounts and what we generally say is stick to the recommended dietary guidelines. So that's around two standard drinks a day. On the topic of drinks as well, let's switch to the other side of the day, the morning time and the coffee fix, uh, caffeine. Are you going to tell us to stop having the morning coffee? No, because I have to practice what I preach and I love my coffee. So I couldn't give that up. Um, But this is a common question I get as well. So caffeine's a bit of a tricky one and it really comes down to the individual person. So people who may have a genetic susceptibility to caffeine may find that it can increase their anxiety levels and can make them a little bit jittery. But on the other hand, like the red wine, coffee contains these compounds called polyphenols, so these antioxidants. So there are some studies to suggest that actually it may be good at lowering our risk for depression, but um, we're not quite there yet to say what dose or how many cups of coffees a day can actually help with that. So I'm quite confused how it can reduce our risks of depression, yet Mm. it may not be be good for people with anxiety. Can you elaborate on both of those two a little bit? So they're separate mental disorders when we think about it and the symptoms for both are quite different. Um, So anxiety, you tend to get more of those worry and those racing thoughts where with depression, it's more of a lower mood, a feeling a bit more down. Um, So with because the caffeine is a stimulant, if someone is having these racing thoughts, it's believed that it may be able to exacerbate these. Um, And again, it comes down to the dose as well and whether you might be that one in however many that might be susceptible to caffeine. Um, To really nut down to it and get down to it, what I use in practice is something called a food and mood journal. So what I advise people if they're really curious is to note down how many coffees they're having over the each day and at the end of the day score on a scale from one to five their mood and how anxious they are. Now this is a really crude thing to do. It's not an exact, there's heaps of things that can affect our anxiety and um, our mood, but it might be able to help keep track and to see whether the caffeine might be actually impacting you more than you think. So what would your recommendation, just sort of standard recommendations for cups of coffee a day be? Yeah. Um, so because 
coffee in general, it's been linked to perhaps even reducing um, risks of other diseases like heart health and things like that. Although the evidence is very unclear, we're not quite sure yet. Um, There's no set amount that we can specifically say. The research isn't there yet. However, it's a good ballpark. I would say if you're feeling a bit jittery or if you're feeling like the effects of caffeine are having an impact on you, I'd limit it to around two cups of coffee a day. But also thinking that green tea, even black tea, Coca-Cola and things like that, they also count towards your caffeine intake as well. So it's not just coffee that might be having an effect as well. And I think if sleep is important and crucial to you, and hello us mums, it's <laughs> something that we live live by the sword, die by the sword, I think limiting your caffeine in that second half of the day is, is pretty important. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's just pair it right back to some of your top tips to sticking to a healthy eating plan for mums in particular who do not have time to calorie count. We do not have time to look at macros and micros, etc. What would you start by recommending? I would start by choosing a thing in your diet that's the easiest to address but has the biggest impact. So for everyone, this might be a little bit different, but I think right across the board as a nation, we're not eating enough veggies. I think it's something like 5% of us are meeting the recommended five serves of veggies each day. So focusing on boosting your intake of veg, um, a food processor, a really good way to do this, to cut everything down really small and add that as a base to a sauce. I think also with every meal you have, can I add a side of veggies to this? Is there even breakfast time, a lot of people, you know, will will skip on the veggies at breakfast. But if you're having your eggs, it's not hard to uh, whip up some mushies or get some baked beans or get some um, spinach. You know, you could put it in, you could just sprinkle it on top of your, I'll just have it raw or a bit of avocado. Like, can you get two veggies into each of your meals? Yeah, I'm a big fan of meal planning as well. So what I do out there every weekend or at the start of the week is I'll think about how can I shape my meal around veggies? I think as a nation, again, we tend to be the meat and three veg. So we'll pick out a chicken, a beef or a lamb and we'll think about adding our veggies to that. But if we could flip it around and think about starting with a veggie, so something like a pumpkin, how can you build your meal around the pumpkin and make it the real focus of the meal? And that's another quick and easy way we can really start shifting our minds to um, have a big impact on what we eat. And so you spoke about some easy hacks using the processor. Have you got any other dietitians hacks that you do at home? (laughs) I'm a big fan of a slow cooker, um, especially at the end of the week to help cut down on food wastage or pop in whatever's sitting at the bottom of the vegetable crisper and pop that in there. And I love waking up on a Monday morning, not having to think about making lunches (laughs) because it's all done for me. So that's always a handy one. Um, I also like to pre-portion out snacks and have them in containers. So sitting them in the car or in the bottom of my bag, just because I can find, and I see this commonly with mums as well, is that we get so busy throughout the day, we forget to eat. So when we get home, we're ravishing and we tend to overeat or find that we don't have time to cook. So we'll order takeout. So if we can have some snacks on hand, which can keep our hunger at bay, we won't get to that point of starvation where we'll go right off the wheel and eat anything in sight. 
Uh, it's so true. You never make a, a, hel- a healthy food choice when you're just chewing your arm off and you're oh. dying of hunger. That's when you will grab the hot chips or the pie because yep. you're walking past the shop. Never go to the supermarket hungry. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on today. You've, you've given us some really overarching great principles, but also some great simple hacks that we can go and do. And I think just remember as well that health is not just about fueling our bodies, but it is about having that healthy relationship with food. And I think it's really important that if we feel like we've lost that joyful, healthy relationship with food, we should go and speak to a dietitian about it, a nutritionist to help us get back on track and to not be drowning in decision fatigue. Yeah, absolutely. You can always find out where a dietitian is in your local area by talking to your GP. Um, but there's plenty of good dietitians and nutritionists who are on the social media space as well. So surround yourself with positive advice, um, I would say, to go through even a social media detox just to ensure that you're getting the best possible advice to you at all times and then go from there, really. Wonderful. Meg, thank you so much for our chat today. No worries. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Healthy Her was presented by me, Amelia Phillips, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Live Proud, sound production by Matt Nikolic. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. Download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Healthy Her. And for more tips and insights on this topic, visit my show notes at ameliaphillips.com.au.